Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. This episode we are joined by the fantastic Chimera of Chimera Genetics. Hope you guys are ready for that 3 out of 3 hitter. Wrap up this epic 6 hour chat with a bang. As always, a big thank you to our fantastic sponsors. Seeds here now, best seed bank in the game, guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination. Why would you go anywhere else? They've got all the biggest breeders in the game, fire from Swamp Boys, Skunk VA, Mean Gene, you name it, they got it. Likewise, check out Coppet Biological Systems, your number one stop to get all the goodies to keep your garden happy and healthy, be it beneficial predator bugs, beneficial microbial powders, or even feeds to keep that beneficial army alive, happy and healthy, and make your next harvest the best today. Likewise, a huge shout out to the Patreon gang. You guys are the lifeblood of the show and truly help to keep episodes happening. If you would like to support the show and continue to ensure that more episodes come out, as well as get access to additional content, unreleased interviews, and some other bonus goodies, go check out www patreon.com forward slash the podcast I hope you guys are excited for that final 3 out of 3 part hitter from Chimera let's get into it a lot of people over the years have expressed concern to me around the idea of the development of such a strain whereby you know it's it's approximately the same height, structure, profile, terpenes. It's got all these traits on lockdown such that, you know, like a big combined harvester can just harvest a field of it perfectly and it just goes through to production, that sort of idea. And the the fear that gets expressed with this sort of end outcome is that we could lose genetic diversity if these populations were to hermaphrodite or to put pollen out, that sort of thing. Do you think that that is a legitimate concern or do you think that it's more akin to the way there's corn and then there's heirloom corn and, you know, they both still exist? Genetic diversity for me is a concern for every species on the planet. And so cannabis being one that I've chosen to be a custodian of, hell yeah, genetic diversity is a hugely important thing. And I think that everybody needs to practice good practice. You know, we need to be doing open populate like whenever whenever i do a population like for example when we did the blueberry stuff with dj we grew all the stuff and then we just let it open pollinate we didn't make we didn't do a lot of seed from it but we let it all get a little bit of seed and all that seed got bulked together right and it's like now you've got everything right and that goes in a freezer somewhere um or a fridge somewhere or whatever into your long-term germplasm storage and then you start working from the clones of the individuals and creating subfamilies. but the first step is the open pollination the first step is the preservation of the genes in the pool right because it doesn't stop you from doing any other type of breeding down line you know you might want to open pollinate the whole thing and collect all the seeds from all the plants and then you've got it all again right and you don't have to do that for another 25 years Right, And then you can take the one clone and make seeds from that one plant. right? So now you've got an inbred version of your population and the, the breadth of the genetic diversity in another population in the fridge. right? Um, and I think that that's a crucial part of – if you're serious about germplasm preservation or genetic preservation of a crop, that's what you do. Right? You – you preserve it and then you improve it and you put the preserved stuff in the freezer and then you can 
improve the line and then if you want you can go back to the original population or cross the new line to the old line or whatever your options are limitless but if you didn't do the preservation you can't go back right um so yeah hugely important for all plant breeders and and definitely people need to be start thinking about it um is making uniform seed going to compromise the genetic diversity of the species I don't think so because again, you might be able to make that new new line where all the plants look the same with a small subset of your population. But as long as you've got that genetic diversity that you've preserved in the first place, you're not really losing anything, right? Sure. Sure, sure, sure. So just to jump back one question. You raise a, a brilliant point and one I've actually kind of struggled to navigate the minefield of myself in that a lot of people in the community use like the incorrect sort of nomenclature around certain topics. And my suspicion is that it arises from the fact that a lot of growers are genuinely very inquisitive and curious. And so they try to look into things and often, you know, words get used in the wrong context because maybe there was never like a formal education around what it's used. And and often it leads to just people like myself using the wrong terms just so that people can kind of understand what we're talking about. The question becomes, do you think there ever will become a sort of formalized nomenclature around cannabis and like an effort to set it straight? And the reason why I specifically <laughs> reference this is because we're seeing a shift with seeds instead of being called S1s, people calling them R1s. And whether that's correct or not, it makes me realize that people are starting to think about this sort of thing. What's your thoughts? What's R1 reversal? Yeah. Well, that's silly because yeah, that's silly because it's a it's a, a S1 means self, right? So yeah, yeah you have to, to you have to reverse one plant, but that plant that you reverse doesn't make the seeds. I think that's a weird thing to call it S1s. And and it's actually kind of funny. I think it's actually a good way to to make this point. The cannabis world kind of likes to be on its own. You know, you asked the question that you asked was, will we ever get to a standard point in time where everybody uses a, a strict set of terminology that's correct? I mean, there is a whole strict set of terminology that's correct, and the rest of the plant world uses it. But for some reason, stoners don't, right? Um, and <laughs> it's it's no fault of our own. Like when, listen, when somebody teaches you something the wrong way. And you, we all learn it, and we all think that it's right. And then all of a sudden, one person learns that, hey, we all learned it wrong. It's pretty hard for the rest of the people to, to come back and turn around. Right? So words like strain, sativa, indica, like all those words are used wrong. Right? Like I even used it earlier. I used the word um, calyx. There's no calyxes. The cannabis doesn't have calyxes. Cannabis has bracts. Right. But again, when and I'm not blaming Rob, but Rob in, in marijuana botany, he misused some of these words and, you know, he learned them the wrong way as well. He was taught them the wrong way. It's I'm not trying to put any blame on Rob for this. Um, so let's d dive into the sativa indica thing for a second here. Sativa. So let's start with indica. Indica means from India. Right, like there's there's other plants that are from India, and they're like you know Medicago indica, for example, right? Like indica means from India. Well, if you look at plants from India, the cannabis plants from India, what are they like? They're equatorial. They've got long, thin leaves, right? But we call those plants sativas. Well, sativas 
sativa means useful or cultivated. It's Latin for, uh, it, it's kind of got a by meaning. It's like useful or, or, or cultivated. Um, peas are pissum sativum, right? And again, that sativum is the same root word, which means useful, right? So somebody had taken a plant out of that collection and, and found a, a, a use for it really is what it is what it is and they they cultivated it in out of the wild it's kind of like the process of taking it out of the wild and and putting it into into your own domestic cultivation is is what the word sativa means well the plants that we mean to be that the plants that were first described by Linnaeus to as cannabis sativa were hemp it wasn't drug cannabis it was hemp Right, and hemp plants have narrow leaves and really tall stems. Okay, so what are the so what are the wide plants then? With the wide, the really short, stocky plants with the super wide leaves that we call indica, they're actually Afghan, so they're Afghanica. So what we call Af, what we call indica is really Afghanica. What we call sativa is really indica. And sativa is really meant for hemp, right? Well, that might sound all interesting and everything, but like, how the hell are we going to get everybody to get on board and understand that that's what it is, right? Like, I mean, even yourself, you're like a highly informed person in the space, and we still use these terms, right? And I, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, make you feel bad or dumb about that. It's like I run into this like every day with people, right? It's like everybody I interact with. It's like, oh, this is a sativa, this is a strain. You know, the word strain. The plant people that do the name the the naming of plants in the world, they kind of oversee. There's like another organization um, that kind of ha- that develops the taxonomy and the names for plants. But they don't use the word strain, right? Strain is simply reserved for bacteria and viruses right so you can have like covid19 is a strain right and it's this the reason it's called or sort of the coronavirus that we call covid the reason is that is that is that it, it has that name is that that all all individuals within that family that came from a common ancestor since it spread all over the world it's undergone all these mutations in its genes so it's actually no longer one individual genetic type reproducing itself it's become like a hairball of all these different genetic types that are reproducing themselves the reason that we all call them um you know the covid strain of coronavirus or whatever is that they all induce the same phenotype in humans right which is the coronavirus disease or covid yeah um so really people that are using the word strain should stop if you know, if it would be my recommendation. What you're calling, what you refer to as a strain, like for example, Blue Dream, is a specific clonal type that has been selected from a population, um, and every plant that subsequently comes from that clone or from mother mother plants of that clone, that should be called a cultivar. Okay, cultivars don't necessarily breed true. Um, but as long as you propagate them through clones, the traits that we refer to that, you know, the, the traits that we named, we have, or somebody has named Blue Dream, all of those traits are consistently, re- they, they consistently come from the plants as long as you're taking cuttings of it, okay? Yeah. If you then cross that plant to itself or one member of its family and all the plants came out 
again, identical to Blue Dream, that would be called a variety. So a variety is a seed family that reproduces a type when you inbreed it through sexual recombination. A cultivar is a plant that maintains its type its type when you reproduce it through clone. Okay. And so I think cultivar is the word that people mean when they say strain. And there's probably not enough true cannabis varieties yet for that to really be too, too relevant to most people. Um, Pinot Noir, for example, it's a clonally propagated plant. That's a cultivar. It's not a strain like you'll never hear. I mean, you, you hear it occasionally, but the plant people would never call it a strain, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of why I lean away from words like indica and sativa, and I try to tell people, or I try to, I try to use the words. All I can do is set an example by using my, you know, these words myself, and I kind of try to use the word equatorial for what you've been referring to colloquially as sativa, right? Um, and then Afghanica, I think, is the best word for indica. Again, Linnaeus, the guy that did this work, was, you know, whatever, over 100 years ago, well over 100 years ago. And then when the drug cannabis growers started getting into cannabis in, call it, the late 50s or maybe 60s and 70s, that's really when the words sativa and indica appeared in our pop culture vernacular or even our cannabis culture vernacular. And it's pretty understandable that they went and read the scientific literature and, and decided, oh, look, this plant is tall and it has thin leaves. It's probably sativa without realizing that Linnaeus was describing a hemp plant, not a drug cannabis plant. Right. And, and same with the indica, right? So really, it becomes hard when everybody is using the words to mean different things. It's again, it's like we're talking with Terps and we don't have a, a consistent um, agreed upon definition, right? Everybody's got their own definition of what the word, these words mean, right? So someone says, oh, I got a strain of cannabis. And it's like, oh yeah, well, what, what, what's a strain? Ask them what a strain is. And it's like, watch them try to figure out what it is. Right, because a strain, it, a strain when it reproduces, it should always reproduce the type. But if you breed a cannabis to its, a cannabis plant to itself, and it's a cultivar, it's a hybrid cultivar. When you breed it to itself, it falls apart. It, the, the kids no longer look like the the mother, right? And that's a real problem in the seed market because some dude gets a cutting again. We'll stick with Blue Dream. Some dude gets a cutting of Blue Dream, and he's like, "I'm going to make a bunch of money." Or he or she thinks they're going to make a bunch of money making seeds from Blue Dream. So they take one copy of the clone and they reverse it with their STS and take that pollen and put it on their their other plant, and then they put all, they harvest all the seeds and they put them in a bag and they label it Blue Dream, right? And those seeds go off to the seed vendor and he puts them on his website and puts them in a package that says Blue Dream. And when you grow the seeds out, they look nothing like the parent, right? So the word blue dream becomes meaningless, right? Because again, it doesn't, you know, then that goes out onto the market and some guys, he finds a plant that's totally different from blue dream and he's selling it in his market as blue dream. And now the public has no idea what blue dream even means, right? Like if you go into a grocery store and you buy a Macintosh apple, and you're in Vermont or Australia or like London, UK or Amsterdam, it's the same apple, right? Because it's, it's been registered as a plant variety, 
right? And they get that when you when that process happens, that's when you get to put the name on the plant and you get the commercial rights to the plant and the name, right? Some other dude can't come along and start like selling an apple in his backyard as Macintosh, right? Because eventually everybody gets to know the flavor of the Macintosh and they realize, yeah, that's Macintosh, that's Granny Smith, that's Honeydew. Right. And people learn these things. And unfortunately, we don't have that kind of standardization in cannabis. Um, and you actually have to be of a certain level in the business with access to lab testing and, you know, a bit of a, a, a snob, like a sommelier kind of snob person to to really understand the differences and be able to pick up a plant and say, that's this. This is the other thing, you know, and, and, and sort them by chemical type. Um, and I'm, you know. I like to complain about these things, but I mean, really the only reason I complain about it is because it needs to become a talking point before people are going to do anything about it. Um, and you have to have some, you know, that was one of the things that I did when we were working down in California, the company that I was working for gave us a, a really quite significant budget to go and buy all the weed that we could find in the state and run it through our lab. And through the process, we were able to start seeing Okay, all everybody agrees that this is sour diesel except for these people. They've got something else they're calling sour diesel. The entire market agrees that this is Blue Dream except for these people. They've got something else that's Blue Dream. And you can start making a you can start linking a chemical profile that that is discoverable by a lab assay that means the type. Right? And yeah. like, you know, a good way to think about it is like if Tom Cruise has kids, we don't call them Tom Cruise and start telling everybody that the kid is in Top Gun, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it's like, it, it's just that we all agree that the the words Tom Cruise or whatever word you want to use is a symbol for a type, right? And that symbol and that type should remain constant from group to group, right? For it to be a real thing. Otherwise, what people are doing is they're just trying to slap a popular name on a different variety to sell it and fool the market. But really what that does is it just confuses the market in the long term, and then nobody knows what every, anything is. And it's one of the shortfalls of cannabis, right? It's like it, I, maybe I'm a way nerding out on it about it too much, but I, I think it would be really great if everybody understood that this certain smell profile is sour diesel, this certain smell profile is what we call blue dream, right? Yeah, a hundred percent, and uh, some really good food for thought, and a little something I'm gonna have to keep in mind going forward, trying to use the right terminology, because I'm definitely a huge advocate of. That's how things get very muddy, you know. I've I've certainly told a lot of people when they make some S ones, you know, make sure to say that it's an S one, you know, like otherwise you have that same problem you mentioned. But just to jump back to something we were talking about earlier with the uh, the AE seventy seven Cali Orange. I just wanted to ask, there is this prevalent idea that exists broadly around, I guess, all orange strains, but maybe it stems from the Calio because it is so widely used and it's like, you know, a common ancestor for a lot of the popular ones at the moment. You've worked with it and you've made the Calazar and the C+. In your experience, do you think that there is a link between that orange profile and a lack of potency? Because a lot of people speak as though you just can't get like a, an orange flavored strain that hits you in the way an OG does. What's your thoughts? Um, no, well, no, it, it, yes and no. Probably I think the long answer is no. Um, 
and the reason is is that like like I kind of mentioned to you off can or off recording scent or smell is a heritable characteristic okay and so it's a trait like every like anything else and it's probably a series of traits that all appear as one and usually when you have traits like that on a given chromosome they kind of get stacked in one part of the chromosome and so chromosomes during copying they break apart and they can switch people we were talking about the blue and the red chromosomes before for mom and dad when that, when that child from you know from mom and dad has it goes, th- it's making sperm or eggs or pollen. Those pieces of chromosomes can actually change little pieces of information. So you might get like a ma- ma- majorly blue chromosome with a little tip of red, and correspondingly a majorly red chromosome with a little tip of blue, and so they do exchange little pieces of information. The probability of those genes that are inherited on that same little chunk getting separated, like the closer two genes are on a chromosome, the more likely it is that they'll be inherited together. Okay. Because there's less chance of a crossover happening um, at that part of the chromosome between those two genes, but it can happen. Okay. Um, It's just really low probability. And so when you say, is THC and orange, you know, are they linked to be that there is no THC, there's no higher potency orange stuff? That's really not true. But it takes a lot of breeding to get to that point. You have to, it's, and that's a phenomenon called gene linkage. And so people can look up on Google gene linkage or even on YouTube, I'm sure there's videos, gene linkage and gene linkage maps. And there's ways that you can, um, if you if you score traits over many generations and you very diligently record the traits and the occurrence, the number of times those traits appear on a set of plants on the population, you can actually start to figure out how close together sets of genes are on the chromosome. Okay, and if you're using genomics or molecular te- techniques, you can actually do it a lot more quickly. But the idea is that you want to. So it might be that the orange flavored genes are very close on the same chromosome to a version of the THC gene that doesn't work very well. Right. And so what we need to do is we need to take that piece of the, the gene for the orange, uh, sorry, the piece of gene for the mediocre THC production and swip switch that out for a gene that is, that makes THC, but it's very effective at doing its job. Um, and that's called breaking the linkage, right? And the closer two genes are on a chromosome, the harder it is to break the linkage between those two alleles. Um, so again, these are all things that can be solved with plant breeding, but it really takes doing like a, a cross with an, you'd, you want to cross, probably you'd want to cross something like, um, you know, an orange plant to a high THC plant like cookies or OG, and then you grow the F1 and you let them all breed together. And in the next generation, you want to grow like, say, 50,000 plants, right? And when you grow that many of the next generation, you have a higher likelihood of finding the plant that has all the orange flavor, but also the high THC production or the high cannabinoid production. 
Um, and that's just plant breeding and numbers, right? Like Luther Burbank used to grow out hundreds of thousands of plants looking for, I think he, you know, I think he selected the russet potato out of like a hundred thousand plants, right? I think that he kept two plants from a hundred thousand. So it's, it's impressive. Yeah. And it's a chore and it's serious, but it's like, man, you want to make those improved plants that's what you do. And now when you've done the work, now you've got an orange plant that is um, high, high in THC. And uh, that's, that's pretty cool. And it, but it takes a lot of work to get there, and you certainly can't do it in a closet. Um, now that we have genomic tools, you know, they can definitely aid in the breeding to do that, but they also have a cost, right? You're still pay, paying however many dollars per sample to have every plant genotyped. Um. So yeah, the good news is that the new ones, like you know, some of the sherb and the new things, they're they're orange and they're a lot more potent than the AE seventy seven is. Yeah, certainly, certainly. So we actually had a, a question from one of our viewers submitted about, like, what are your thoughts on the occurrence of like the supposed like one in a thousand phenos, and specifically, they kind of reference this idea of every now and again, for the most part, you'll see most plants having just lots of characteristics of the parents some blended some leaning more towards one or the other but every now and again maybe you call it a one in a thousand pheno so to speak you get a plant that's almost unlike either of the parents in any regard do you feel like this is a, a real sort of phenomenon that occurs or do you th- maybe it's pollen contamination and do you think these one in a thousand phenos will be more sought after given we've kind of discussed them a bit and how there can be advantages to finding these special occurring plants? They, they can be better than the others, but they're not necessarily better. I think when people are talking about the one in a thousand, it's really most often about, you know, it's like you said, you get traits from mom and traits from dad, but like, did you get all the right traits from mom and all the right traits from dad? Right. That's one in a thousand kind of material. Um, the other thing that you might see, I think what you're hinting at, is there are these very rare genetic combinations that lead to an altered phenotype of some type. And the reason that they're rare is that, again, it's really... it, it with, with breeding, it's, again, like I said, it's statistics and math. It all comes down to just having the right genes. And if you have all the right combinations of genes, then you can get an aberrant or a strange or a new phenotype that was unseen in either of the parents but that all is based on probability right um and it's really just rolling the dice over and over and over and over and over again until you get the right combination of genes together sure and i mean it seems like a good point to segue into some of the more advanced science and ip stuff we're going to chat about The first question I have in regards to genes and the way they line up, do you, to the best of your knowledge, know if CRISPR or any kind of molecular editing has been used to create altered cannabis varieties? I don't believe so. It might have been done somewhere in in some lab, but CRISPR is not as easy as everybody thinks it is. Um, You don't just dip a a plant in CRISPR juice, for example, and the whole thing comes out changed, right? Like, these genetic changes, they happen on a single cell, right? And then that single cell has to have integrated the new trait, and that single cell needs to become a new plant. 
And so when that single cell divides and divides, you have what are called, when you get a clump of cells, you get what are called sectors in the, in the cell. And those sectors might actually, like you might lose the CRISPR mutation or whatever the CRISPR change has caused. And so now you've got a plant that is growing as a chimera. Like it's actually a plant with multiple genetic types within the plant. But what you need to have is a plant that is all one genotype that all incorporates the, you know, the new CRISPR mutant ver- version of your your altered gene. Um, and so when you grow, how do I explain this? When you when you grow cannabis plants, it's not like the shoot that comes off of a plant. It's not a single cell. It's an organ, right? It's not one single dif- undifferentiated cell. It's like all the cell types are already organized in a way that they know what they're doing, right? So the, the, the equivalent to people can think about in humans, if you've got, you know, the cells in your heart are, are heart cells. They're heart tissue cells. The cells in your lungs are lung tissue cells. The, 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 the nerve cells in the back of your eye are eye tissue cells cells they're all highly specialized and differentiated okay now any cell type can revert to what we call stem cells and plants have equivalents of stem cells um which is you know more or less callous it's it's really like a a de-differentiated cell it's a cell that started as an organized group of tissues and it went back to the cellular level well if you do that and you get it down to the one cell now you can make your CRISPR changes on that one cell but you have to grow it back out into a full plant that is redifferentiated into the proper types. Okay. And that doesn't just happen spontaneously. Like you have to, there's protocols with different chemical and hormonal applications that you have to get, that you have to go through to redifferentiate a stem cell. It's like, you know, it's like if you want to take a stem cell from someone, you take cells out of their skin um, you you put them through a genetic program and it makes them back into a stem cell. Now it's like the progenitor cell that be, can, can become heart tissue or eye tissue or lung tissue. And so depending on what you want that cell to do in the end, you have to coax it along that genetic pathway. So your little baby stem cell grows up to be a heart cell, right? And then you can take those heart cells and coat them on some kind of like matrix so that they grow into a piece of tissue that you can actually transplant into a heart, for example. Um, You don't want to put lung cells into a heart, right? And so there's a whole science that nobody has figured out, to my understanding, that nobody's figured out in cannabis to really go through that process of single cells to differentiated tissue. Secondly, when they go through that process of redifferentiation, there's something called soma clonal variation, um, and again, you can look that up. It's soma clonal, S-O-M-A, and then the word clonal variation. And that's genetic variation or epigenetic variation that stands upon the genotype. Um, and that can actually, ch- through something called DNA methylation, that can ch- either silence genes or overexpress genes and the result of those things may be that the plant that actually comes out of that form of tissue culture is not the same as the one that went in, regardless of the genetic change that you made. Right? So I think that for now, it, listen, it's going to happen at some point in time. Somebody will make, you know, CRISPR cannabis. 
it hasn't. I don't, I don't believe it's happened yet. Um, typically, you, you make those kinds of alterations in in species that that are already ide- or mostly ideal, but you just want to fix one trait, and there isn't the natural genetic diversity that is present in the species for you to be able to go back and select those traits through breeding. Um, it's a it's a it's a shortcut. It's a really cool technique. It's super neat that we can that we're at the point in time that we can do that now. But I don't think that anybody has to worry that that's happening with cannabis at the moment, right? It it will come one day, but I don't think that we're there yet. Yeah, what a really comprehensive answer. So if we jump to the other end of the spectrum, you know, as a, as opposed to maybe the the quote experts using genetic modification let's talk about the novice for a second what would be your advice to someone just starting out on the right way to breed what would be any tips or sort of principles you would recommend they adhere to genetics for dummies i'd get yourself a genetics for dummies textbook understand a basic plant breeding textbook or even a basic biology textbook that teaches meiosis um, meiosis is the dance of life that goes on, like I said earlier, in the forming of the cells that become sperm, pollen, eggs, and, you know, um, ovules and plants. And that genetic dance is more important to the breeding process than anything else. Because if you understand how it happens, then you understand what's possible and what's not possible. Once you have that knowledge, you can add on cannabis knowledge on top of it and you only become more informed. But the vast majority of books on cannabis don't do an adequate job of talking about it. Um, Rob Clark's book is not bad for it. It's, it's a pretty good start. You have to remember the context. And I say it's not bad. It's an epic book. But I say it's not bad today because it's 2020 and that book was written 39 years ago. It was published in, in 1981. Um, so the amount of things that we've learned about science since then is pretty vast. And a lot of those things are kind of left out of the book. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't talk bad about Rob's book because it's it fails because it's it's not a good book. It's a great book. It's just it's got a lot of science from, you know, that time period and, and the, our perspective on breeding from that time period. Um, so yeah, start off with basic plant breeding, do yourself a favor, just read, you know, the first 10 chapters of a plant breeding book, then go and start really digging into cannabis. And I guarantee you that it will make your cannabis breeding that much better because you'll understand how you can do things, what you can do and what you can't do. And those are important things to know. I mean, you have to know, you know, plant breeding is about getting from point A to point B, you have to understand where you are at point A and know where you're going to point B. You don't just get in a car and start slamming the gas down, right? And and close your eyes and hope that you're going to get to your destination. And that's kind of the way that we've been breeding cannabis. Um, if that, if you can take that as an analogy. Sure. A really good answer as well. I think probably do everyone, even myself, good to brush up on that sort of thing. So the next question is, we commonly hear people discuss this idea about how breeders of years gone by, maybe people working in the 90s or even earlier, it was, it's commonly discussed that like they just had such good stock to work with. 
But then on the counter end of that argument, you hear that, well, maybe they were just better breeders, so to speak. But part of me thinks, well, there wasn't as many breeders back then. So it would be weird that like there was such a high number of breeders that historically have been considered to have done some pretty good work. What's your thoughts? Do you think that the stock was better or that there was some interplay of skill involved? No, I don't think either of those things. I mean, there's good plant breeders then, there's good plant breeders now. I think the stock that people were working with back then was probably less refined, not better. Um, there was probably more dogs in any, in any family, in any seed population that you'd, you'd grow. There's probably more subpar plants than there are today. Um, because, again, the people that are breeding today, they get to benefit from all the good choices that people made in the past. And in the past, I mean, it depends on how far back you go, but, I mean, we're talking like 70s. You know, at that point in time, people were really using um, what I would call like more close to land race or indigenous or region of origin populations. And like I said before, those types of of genetic material, that type of genetic material is usually quite is a lot less refined. And so you have a lot of, of, of a lot more less desirable traits in those populations. So things like intersex, you were talking about, you know, for example, Thai, a lot of people know that Thai has got intersex plants and, you know, David, I spoke a lot with David about Thai because he's probably done more Thai breeding than anyone I know. He used to go there and collect seeds and then bring them back and do a lot of work. And, you know, he said that like that 95% of them were just trash, right? Tall, weak potency, intersex, and, you know, so if you're growing like a few thousand Thai plants and you're only going to find, you know, call it less than a hundred that are even potential candidates, that's not, that's a lot of work for, um, not a lot of reward. Also, Thai doesn't yield anything. Like it's a tiny little sparse plant. So if you grew 2000 plants and you're not yielding very much, that's also not a very good use of your resources. Right. So there's a reason that we don't grow those plants anymore. And I know that there's specialists that like to go back and haul small home growers and i think that that's fantastic like i think it's great that people are growing those things and still playing with those plants because even if you're just crossing and stumbling around like the chances are you might you might stumble there's a possibility at least that you might stumble into something good um but i think from seriously going to work a line like that really you know, it's nice because Thailand is just about to legalize medical wheat, cannabis. And it's like you'd really want to go back to Thailand and grow 200, 300,000 plants looking for the one. Right. Um, and and so when I talk about cannabis, you know, and, and genetic resources, it's like we have some painful steps that we have to do through those processes. But that you know that would be a terrible thing to have to do <laughs> grow like 20 acres of plants just to find the one um because they're not going to yield anything so from a commercial perspective it's kind of like how do you convince your investors that that's a good idea but if somebody does it and they do find the one plant that is just epic for whatever reason for whatever set of trades then yeah like at that point in time we move forward from that new starting point and then things get better Right. And corn, apparently I have, I have some corn breeder friends too. And they, they tell me that corn kind of went through the same thing. Like there was a lot of times where there was a lot of crosses with all these different ho- corn varieties. And again, the vast majority of them were dogs. They were just terrible populations. They were, they didn't taste good. They didn't yield well. They didn't have good mold resistance or, you know, 
crop protection traits, all that kind of stuff. But once you once you go through the hard part of purging all those negative traits out of the population, you're actually you you end up at a starting place that's much better than where we are. And once we get there, we'll be able to turn cannabis into that type of crop like we were talking about with corn, where you can plant seeds and they all come up looking, you know, I call them bulletproof plants. They come up, they're perfect, they got the perfect chemistry, they got the great yield, they've got all the proper resistances, they're all uniform, you know, everything that a, a, a true crop producer could want, right? Like, I think that's really what a plant breeder's goal should be, aside from the discovery, and right now, you know, we sell breeders typically in the cannabis market sell the variation as a, a um a feature, not a flaw. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not really like if you're growing crops and you're a you're a farmer, you want to plant all the seeds and they come up looking the same. If you plant thousand seeds and all the plants are different, you're not gonna be very happy. Right, because then you got to go and do all that phenotypic selection, and you're you don't you lose all the uniformity in your crop, which is a pain in the ass for many many reasons, from harvesting to marketing to everything. Um, and so we got to get to that point in time where we've actually bred the plants to be reliable seeds, so that you can plant a crop and and the farmer can know that what is on advertised in the description is going to come up in the field. Yeah, really valid point there and some kind of often under-considered um, kind of points you raise there. It's it's a shame, but it's just part of this evolution and, you know, like everybody wants to be a breeder. It's like a lot of people think that like, okay, I'm, I've been growing for five years, so now I'm a breeder. And it's like, no, you're not. It's a totally different set of skills. Yeah, you got to be a grower to be able to to appreciate the minutia of the characteristics of the plant and look and understand what you're seeing. But really, if you want to be a breeder, go learn how to be a breeder. It's not hard, right? It just takes time. And, and it's a set of heuristics that you have to understand and methodologies that you have to understand. It's not difficult stuff to grasp. It's not like you have to be some super special, crazy person to do it. You don't, but you do have to put in the time, you know, just like you don't pick up a guitar and then like start touring with Metallica, right? <laughs> yeah, very good analogy. And I mean, on the point of being a good breeder, a question I always like to ask the guests, what are some, if any, attributes you look for in a male that you think are a sign of quality or will help with the project? Well, I'm going to flip it back right to the same thing I said before about males. I think males are a detriment to uh, breeding drug cannabis because they don't match the morphology and the chemistry um, that the female plants use. So, you know, I am really doing a lot more work these days on, I'll do preservation run. If I have a population and I do a preservation, I'll open pollinate it using the males and then I select my females from the, once I've open pollinated the males, I know that I've got all the genes from the plants, right? From the entire population. You cross all the males to all the females. You, that's, that's what's called an open pollination and all the genetic diversity is then preserved. That goes in the freezer or the fridge. Then you take your females and you start selecting, like I said, for traits of interest on any given size of the cross. So, you know, you ask me what are important traits, I'm going to put it back to you and say, what are important traits for you, right? You know, 
flavor, yield, potency, uh, or I'm not going to say potency, but cannabinoid profiles, because you might be selecting for, you know, THCV and against THC. It's not all about the drug, or at least the THC, the, the recreational drug. There's all these other compounds that are really have important potential medical uses. And so if you identify that compound in two female plants, you cross them together and now you've got a population that is more likely to have that trait in it. And then you can start adding in, you know, stature or morphology or plant architecture or um, flavor or color or, you know, cannabinoid profile or whatever it is. Um, resistance to powdery mildew, resistance to molds, resistance to pests, like all of those types of traits, especially the last three, um, they're impossible to breed for in closets. You just can't do it. Um, you have to be grown on a field with disease pressure and selecting plants in the environment that you're going to be growing them. And I think that those kinds of traits, like the things that are really important to growers have kind of been left out of, um, the agendas of plant breeders because let's face it, everybody's been chasing flavor and potency, right? Really above everything else. And I think even you look at the basic architecture out of, of some of these, the plant, the plant architecture, I call it, or the stature or the, or the structural morphology of the plant. You look at some of these new hybrids coming out of California and their statures are terrible, right? Like these plants, you have to support them. You got to stake them. You got to grow them in nets. Um, because they can't support themselves with the, the weight of the flower. The stems are all tiny little thin things that you, you put them in a room with any kind of powdery mildew issue or greenhouse and they're, they're turning the powdery mildew and mold. So all those traits that have been ignored, like we really need to start breeding for those things because again, from an industry, there's two sides and I call them, I look at them as competing interests, but it's, I call them growers' plants and smokers' plants, right? The, pl the plants that the grower wants to grow are typically not the plants that the smokers want to smoke, right? Because the, they've kind of got competing in in interests. The grower wants the big one that's bulletproof. You know, it's it's mold resistant. It's powdery mildew resistant. It can doesn't matter if mites bite it. Like, it just keeps going. It's got these big thick leaves or whatever the traits are that keep the mites at bay. And the same with, like, root aphids or anything. I mean, we could be talking about any part of the plant here. Um, but that's really what, as a breeder, you need to deliver a plant because they're your customer. The customer is not – your customer is not the smoker. Your customer is a seed purveyor is the grower, right? And so you need to be serving his agenda. But – also, his agenda is to have a marketable product that he can sell on the market. If you give him a bulletproof plant that sucks to smoke, you're not really also not doing him any flavors, right? So it's really about balancing the wishes of the goals and the growers versus the goals of the smokers. And ideally, you can create a plant that caters to both. That's a lot of work. And I don't think that there's any plant breeders on the planet, really, with cannabis that are at that point yet where we've got plants that do both you know um again prohibition has kicked us in the teeth over the last 40 years 50 years we haven't been able to make any any progress 60 years right we haven't really if you if you look at the the genetic progress that crops like wheat and corn have undergone in the past 60 years they're lights they're light years ahead of where we are because we just haven't had we've been kept out of the system they wouldn't let us play in the game right Every time you try yeah. to set up a row, the cops would show up. So, 
and the UN's yeah. run, UN's run, and the United States are running around the world paying people to cut up down other weed. It's it's been a pretty hard time for cannabis for the last sixty years. Yeah, undeniably so. I think the next question, admittedly, is one of those ones where it's like a kind of like a how long is a bit of string question. But a lot of growers and breeders often ask the question, what is sort of the minimum number of seeds you'd want to run through to feel like you had a reasonably good idea of what was in the gene pool, so to speak? And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, it depends on the number of traits that, traits that you're tra- you're chasing. We would when we would do a cross down in California. The minimum we, we had these uh, nursery trays that are called seventy two cell nursery trays. It fits in a ten inch by twenty inch standard nursery tray, and it has uh, seventy two cells. And we would start those, and that's enough to get a good, excuse me, a good initial look at the population. And depending on what you see in that, you might find an incredible plant. You might even find a plant that's a breeder. You might realize that the population sucks. Or you might decide, let's grow another 10 times what we grew or another five times what we grew, right? But I, I kind of feel like, you know, I'd like to do more, but just because of this is like a good size for starting, you know, it was like, it was an easy thing to put in our in our production system. Um, so it's not ideal, but it's, it's a pretty good idea to get a good idea. You got to remember also... Most people are breeding from like three, five, or ten seeds, not a hundred or seventy-two or you know five hundred. So seventy-two is a lot better than we've done in the past. That does doesn't mean it's close to ideal, but it's it's all about being able to move your project forward and balancing with you know the resources that you have available. Right? It costs money to grow plants. Right, it takes time. There's an opportunity cost to growing plants because you could be growing other plants, right? And truthfully, I, I got so many populations of seeds. It's like I'm never going to get through them all, right? So um, it's about prioritizing them. And sometimes you make a cross, and you're like, "Well, that was that was great," and but now I need to grow the next generation of those plants. And the stuff that's in your vault waiting to get sprouted. You know, you don't even have a chance to go back to it because every time you grow a new line, you might add a new population or a new project to your goal, your, your set of breeding goals. So, yeah, I, I, 72 is what we were doing. It was a good start, like I said. Yeah, that seems like a pretty pretty nice number to start with for sure. It's, so- it's far, dude, it's far less, less than is ideal. Like, I'll tell you that right off the bat. I mean, I'd want to grow a 1,000 if I could, but a thousand plants sent to the lab at 50 bucks a pop that's a fifty thousand dollar bill right so (laughs) it's probably worth more than the crop is worth right so you know it's all about balancing your resources your space available and and your priorities and there's no magic numbers yeah yeah I, i understand So, we've been alluding to it all episode, but time to get into it. Some people may or may not be aware, but you were involved in the first case of cannabis having a a patent on it. I'd love to hear how you got involved in this initially. Yeah, well, the first, so, the first, they weren't the first patents involving cannabis. They were the first utility patents involving plants. And truthfully, I had nothing to do with the patent side of it. I worked for a research company and I did the plant breeding and the, the IP development and the patents came from 
more or less the lawyers of the group. Um, there's certain things that I can talk about that, that I that's public just been publicly disclosed, and there's unfortunately stuff that I can't because I'm I was under contract with these folks and I signed a non-disclosure agreement. But yeah, there was patents done on work that I did on these plants, and my name is not affiliated affiliated with those patents at all. Um, p- again, people get really freaked out when you start talking about patenting plants. These weren't patents on a specific plant. They were patents on the use of a specific plant. It might seem like a, a like splitting hairs, but it actually has a, a big difference. Um, plants, plant patents per se, like specific plant patents, are only really valid in a couple of countries, one being yours and the other one being the United States. So Australia and the United States are, I think, two of the only global... Um, justice systems that are or legal systems that actually recognize patents on plants in Canada. They don't recognize patents on higher organisms. Although you can patent the cell of a plant, which is kind of bizarre. So if somebody has a plant with that cell in it, I guess you can in some way try to enforce intellectual property rights on them. It's pretty difficult. Um, Everybody's heard the story about Monsanto going after this poor organic farmer that grew seeds and his seeds were contaminated by um, Monsanto. The story that most people don't understand, which is the truth, (laughs) was that this farmer planted his soybeans right beside Monsanto's crop that was next door. And he went and actively collected all the seeds from the plants right along the border and then grew those plants and subjected to them. They, those, those plants had a gene in them that caused a resistance to a chemical, an agricultural chemical called uh, glyphosate or Roundup. And Roundup is a, a herbicide that essentially kills plants that don't have this specific gene in them. The gene came from a bacteria. Then um, they put it into this plant, and then once the plants had the gene, they became resistant to this um, thing. So Percy Schmeiser, who was the farmer, Somehow the media really painted him as a bit of a hero, this poor organic farmer against big old bad Monsanto. And don't get me wrong, I have no love for Monsanto, but the truth of the matter was is that this guy actively went after using their genetic technology, and he wasn't growing organically. He exposed those all those seeds to this agrochemical, and then in, in the process, he essentially stole their IP. He took the gene, um, and he went to court, and he lost. So... But somehow in the media, that became, oh, this poor organic farmer, he was being bullied by the big guy. And I think that that's probably a bit of a a narrative that was created because there's a certain segment of the population that's against genetic modifications. And, you know, the way that we do genetic modifications now compared to the way that we did them 20, 30 years ago is really different. We've become, you know, back then it was probably closer to like, you know, doing surgery with a with a, a a Japanese sword rather than, you know, a scalpel. Um, and nowadays we're very, very skilled. We have all these new technologies that allow us to go in and create specific changes to to DNA like like you were talking about, Heavenly, with CRISPR. Um, and those things kind of are just by the wayside. So 
anyway, I think to, just to clear it up, I think that, you know, there was a lot of people running around online saying that I was patenting all the world and I was trying to steal the whole world's strains. Truth is, I had nothing to do with it other than breeding the plants. Um, I don't, my name's not on the patents. I don't get any intellectual property rights from them. I don't get any royalties from it. I really have absolutely nothing to do with it. And I don't work with that group anymore and I haven't for a number of years. Um, so, so yeah, it's kind of a, it's just kind of a funny thing. Um, I was really, you know, I, I started working with the group because they were quite patient focused and I had an opportunity to have someone build us our dream lab to really start screening uh, large populations of cannabis in a way with like high, what we call brute force um, chemical breeding. I mean, it's, it's like I said, it's expensive to grow a lot of plants and then send every single one of them to the laboratory and have full, uh, you know, full terpene and cannabinoid. And we also looked at other chemicals as well that influence smell and flavor and um, it was a, a learning experience for me, and I really enjoyed it. Like, I really, there were some good folks in the group, and we created some really cool plants that had unique chemistry CBDV, THCV, um, you know, CBD type 2 plants with altered cannabinoid ratios and really interesting terpene profiles. And all of that stuff was able to go to a series of dispensaries and companies that were growing it. Um, and it was really, really a lot of fun. And it was really gratifying to be able to create these, you know, these plants that we'd always talked about and uh, deliver them to patients. Um, there was a few people in the community that were pretty upset about the idea of cannabis patents being granted. And they did a, a lot of effort to create a narrative where people thought that, you know, that we were trying to steal the world and nothing could be more further from the truth. You know, the only things that were patented were new unique combinations of cannabinoids that, and terpenes that had, that didn't exist before. Like they were new plants, right? They really were new inventions. Right. Um, and when we did that, I guess the lawyers for the group were like, Oh, we need to protect these things. And, but I think that that's also a thing that, you know, people kind of want to say, ah, it's unfair that you can patent a plant or a life and it's like or, or an organism that occurred in nature. Well, dude, these things didn't occur in nature, right? Like these plants are not, you're not going to go into any population and find a plant with this set of chemistry. They just don't exist. They're new. Um, and you don't spend many hundreds of thousands of dollars or more doing research into any kind of technology or plant or breeding program or you know you're designing a new computer or whatever it is it's like you don't design you don't spend money in research and development if you if the people that are paying for the research and development can't get a return on their investment right that's just the way it is um and patents aren't the only way that you like we said that you can get intellectual pr property rights on plants there's these things called PBRs or plant breeder rights registrations through UPOV, which is the union for the protection of plant varieties, which is a global organization that, like I said before, kind of oversees the intellectual property matters of plants, right? Like if you, if you spent 15 years to make a new apple variety and it's, let's just call it again, granny Smith or whatever, you know, you have, you should have the rights to reap the commercial rewards for a period of time. And part of that system 
exists that yeah, you get the commercial rights, but you have to make the plant variety available to any other breeder in the world. And they can take that variety and use your work to make something better. Right. And, and that better plant, even though you have your commercial rights for 20 years or 15 years or whatever it is, depending on the jurisdiction, it might be in five years, somebody's created a better variety of yours anyway than yours anyway, uh, using your work, right? And the reason it's set up like that is so that humanity benefits from, you know, it's a communal development where the whole world gets to benefit from a new technology. Yeah, you might come up with a new technology and you get some rights to a few years to use it, but everybody else in the, in the, in the industry also gets to take it and then start using it in their own breeding programs. And so it's kind of a trade-off. Um, anyway, I, it's it's a funny thing because you know I've had I've I had death threats online about it, right? Whoa. People, and it's just bizarre, right? Because it's like it's like read the patent. My name's not even on it. Like I really have nothing to do it. I don't I don't get a penny from it. And you're threatening my life because of some perceived notion that somebody took something from you, which couldn't even be further from the truth. It's like you know. Anyway, it's just it's just weird. It's just what it is. But hey, man, that's uh, you know part of the thing that's going on from this transition from the old world to the new world. You know, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, I've been growing cannabis for thirty years, and so uh, you know, I've worked with people all over the world and all these different really. You know, like like I said, we've all the people that we've talked about. These people are all colleagues and friends of mine, right? And so. When when you get new people in the industry that come in and they've been around for two years and they're accusing you of stealing from the community, it's kind of like go fuck yourself, <laughs> you know. It's like you're Johnny come lately. I've dedicated my life to this kind of work, and you're telling me that I'm stealing from you. Like, give me a break. It's ridiculous. Um, and truthfully, the reason that we did the work is so that we that we could provide these new types of medicine to patients. So I don't, I don't feel bad about it. You know, um, I don't know if I would seek patents myself on plants, but again, it doesn't apply in my market because, because in Canada, that's not how you seek intellectual property protection. It is one way you can do it in the States and you can do it in Australia, but, um, it's not something that interests me. So yeah no what a what a comprehensive answer to a question i think a lot of people have been interested in hearing the backstory behind another similar question you hear discussed in that same vein which i've always been interested in but quite skeptical of the truth behind it is you hear people discuss this idea that if someone were to be able to say obtain a a a patent right or some sort of patent over a very primordial sort of cannabis genetics, which I don't even know if that's possible, that they could then like pull the plug on anyone growing a, a distant descendant of that. So to give it some context, like if somehow I got a patent for the original Northern Lights, the fear is that like I could claim infringement on anyone who's growing anything with like Northern Lights in the genetics. Do you yeah, think not, that's, that's like... That's not true. Anybody that says that doesn't understand how patents work and patent and intellectual property rights work. Um, when you get a plant patent in the States or Australia, you get the rights to that one clone, that one specific genotype, and it has to be very described. And usually they've done a DNA fingerprint profile. If somebody else takes that plant and crosses it to something else, it's 
It's gone. It's out in the open, right? You still can't grow their one plant that's registered, but you can make a hybrid of it and grow that. So it's kind of a like the, this idea that somebody's patenting primordial. The other thing about patenting primordial varieties, if you want to call them that, it's actually a great little term, is that you can't patent anything. Like one of the key criteria for for getting a patent granted is that your patent, your invention, which is what a patent is, is a is a protection on an invention. Your invention has to be novel, and that just means new, right? So you actually have to have something that's new. You can't come along and like take something from the market and patent it. That doesn't work, right? The, they would never, they'd never grant the patent, and even if they did grant the patent. Right, the pat it's it, patent is just really a piece of paper that says I own this thing. Right, I got I got this patent and I own this thing. Well, someone can say I'm going to challenge your patent, so they can take you to court. Right, and then there's a court case and a whole process that goes on about deciding who actually owns the patent. And so, if if you're granted a patent on a plant, and somebody else says, "Oh, hey, I've got the same plant or whatever." You, you you have to sue the person that's violating your rights, right? So it's actually a defensive strategy. Like, if you own the patent, you're not the one getting sued. You're the one that's doing the suing. But when you start suing somebody, it could be ruled that your patent's invalid, right? So it has to be worth your while to go after someone, right? It really has to be affecting your bottom line, right? Because you always open up yourself to the chance that the, the court rules in the other person's favor and you lose your patent rights. Right. So a a patent is not like an impenetrable bulletproof vest. It's a stake in the ground. Like, you know, when people stake mining sites, right. It's like you're planting a flag in the ground and saying, this space is mine. Right. And really whether that space is yours is really can be a matter for the courts, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that your claim is true. It just means that you got it by the guy that says, yeah, that seems like a a legit claim, right? So take that for what it's worth. Yeah, no, I had a sneaking suspicion that that might be the case. So that's good to hear your input on that one. I think we've got some kind of more or less technical questions as we're kind of on the tail end of things. So I'm interested to hear the answers to some of these. But one that's came up a few times from our guests when I put the call out, if anyone had any questions, how did you get the name Chimera? I, ch- I just chose it. I mean, it was uh, I was studying DNA at the time and genetics and a Chimera. So it's actually a funny question because years after I kind of chose the name, I actually became a, a, a Chimera through surgery. A Chimera is a, it means different things. In Greek mythology, it was a, a mythical beast that was a lion with the tail of the lion was a serpent. And there was a, like a goat head or two goat heads growing out of the back of the animal. And so really it was this scary mythical beast that was composed of three different monsters really is what it was supposed to be. Um, but in, in DNA, in the DNA world, a chimera is something that has DNA from two different organisms. Okay. So any different tissue, like if, for example, if someone had a heart transplant and they got a a heart from somebody else, they'd become a chimera because now they had, uh, an organ of a different type of DNA growing within their body, right? Which satisfy the condition of what a chimera is. 
for me, the word I kind of felt like the word was like a um, it was it, it it to me what it meant was a combination, a fusion of science and cannabis, which back then at the time was completely unheard of, right? Like I didn't know anybody in my cannabis community that was into science. They just didn't care. Um, and I was so interested in nerding out about the plant and chemical analysis and the genetics of it um, that to me it was more of a symbol for the fusion of understanding of science and an understanding of chemistry. And I didn't ever intend for it to be a name that stuck. It was just a name that I chose to register on, a, on an internet web board at one point in time, right? Um, and so it stuck and I never, you know, I, I never changed my name on the internet. I didn't, I always was the type of person that kind of, I would just say what I wanted to. And if you didn't like what I was saying, well, too bad, but I'm not going to say something and then change my identity so that I don't have to have the consequences of what I said. Right. Um, to me, my word means something. And so I, I always just kept the same name over, like it's been, you know, a long time now or 25 years, at least on the internet, which is bizarre to even consider that that's true. But, um, yeah, so that's what it meant to me. And then later on I had, I developed a condition called keratoconus and I had to have two, uh, cornea transplants. And so I've got corneas from two different people. So I actually see the world through the eyes of two people that have left this world, um, becoming a chimera, funnily enough. Yeah, wow. What what a real life sort of twist to the name. Yeah, it was bizarre. <laughs> I didn't even realize it until it happened and then I was like, "Hey, I guess I'm a chimera now." <laughs> there you go. So, the next question we had was how do you store your seeds? What's your what's your method for long-term germination viability? Uh, mostly just the fridge, four degrees Celsius in a, in a very expensive scientific incubator that I bought at an auction for a song. Um, and, and, th and that suits me very, very well. Um, again, taking cues from, I actually came up with my, own, I, I decided to put them at four degrees Celsius because there was all this discussion on whether freezing cycles damage the seed. And I, you know, I, I figured getting it close as possible to freezing without actually freezing was probably best for these things. Water's densest point is at four degrees Celsius. And so to me, that seemed like the optimum point to be storing seeds. And and later when I, you know, started spending a lot more time with David and we kind of, you know, we, once we became good friends, we kind of just opened the doors to each other's not knowledge. Like it's like I taught him everything I know and he taught me everything he knew. Um, and we just kind of had this open exchange of ideas and, and sharing techniques and stuff. And he's been actually storing seeds in the, under the exact same conditions for over 25 years. And when we were cataloging this massive collection a couple of years ago, we, we actually pulled some out and did some germination tests on these, you know, 25 year old seeds. And we were pulling out 25 year old seeds that were germinating at like 80, 90%. Right, so that's perfectly sufficient for I think the time scale of the rest of my life. Um, I think seed fridges are fine. You can now do. Uh, I've got a friend in, in that was working in Spain, named he's a Sicilian guy named Salvatore Cassano, and he started doing some cryopreservation on seeds, and that worked out pretty well. 
um, like a deep freeze in liquid nitrogen, or sorry, you, you, you actually don't put the seeds in the liquid nitrogen. You store them in the gas above the liquid. So it's not quite as cold. Um, and I thought that was really cool. And so I started looking into whether we could freeze tissue cultures and you can, like there's all these different protocols online for hops and other plants on how to actually freeze shoot tips. Um, and there's a real trick to it. There's a few tricks to it. Um, and it was quite difficult, but it's actually possible. Um, again, it's an expense, right? It costs money to do it and maintain the, the tissue cultures at that temperature for extended periods of time, but it's totally possible. Um, so yeah, you can freeze it. You can use cryopreservation to freeze material. You can use cryopreservation to freeze seeds and you can keep seeds in the fridge for a long time. And as long as they're properly dried, um, you can do things like flushing them with oxygen or, or uh, not oxygen. I'm sorry. You eliminate the oxygen from the environment where the seeds are stored. Um, like, you know, specific little vials or something or nitrogen container, nitrogen containers where you've pushed out the, the oxygen gas, you essentially flood it with with nitrogen and then you seal it um and those can extend the seed life even further so i don't think you know this a lot of people get all bent out of shape it's like oh you're selling these seeds and they're 12 years old it's like just put them in the dirt and see you know don't worry about how old they are if they germinate then they're germinating and if they don't i'll send you more right that's kind of the way I feel about it. Like I'm not, you know, I, I don't obviously I don't retail seeds myself. We sell them through legal channels and in Europe. But I always tell my retailers, if you have problems and people call in and complaining, just give them more. I'll replace them, right? Like it's not. I kind of you know, I said at one point in time online, it's like I, I'm not just giving you seeds with a germination guarantee. It's like if you don't like the plants, tell me, right? Come back to me. Tell me what's wrong. I'll send you more. I'm gonna send you seeds until you're happy. Right. That's what it's that's that's why we do it. Right. I want people to grow the things that we find interesting and enjoy them. And if they if they for some reason grow them and they feel like that we've let them down and they they have they've had a subpar experience, dude, I'll make sure that the retailers send them the seeds until they're they're happy. Right. Because that's what I want from our customers. That's why that's why I do the work. That's why I love working with cannabis is because it makes me happy. And I want other people to experience that same joy through our seeds. Yeah, really, really beautiful sentiment around the plant for sure. So the next question I had was what style of growing do you like to do or maybe you could phrase it as what style of growing do you like to advocate for? Like cocoa, soilless soil, where do you stand? It's, you know, to me it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. I think all growers are going to find their all, or they're all going to find their own unique thing. I think if I had my druthers, live organic soil um respectful of the plant respectful of the environment respectful of your resources around you you know i don't like the idea of people growing with tons of salts and that running off into groundwater or you know people flushing nutrients down the toilet i mean that's all bullshit to me like it's really not okay to be doing that to the planet we don't need to be damaging the planet just because we're growing some cannabis um, it should be able to be grown in line with nature, but you know, if you have to grow in a, there's reasons why you would want to grow in a sterile hydroponic system. Um, 
for, you know, if you're in a certain commercial greenhouse or whatever, there's lots of there's lots of ways to grow cannabis, and I'm I'm not really against or for any of them. I think if people can be sustainable about it and healthy about it, and you're not spraying like agrochemicals on the plants, like pesticides and fungicides and all that kind of stuff, I think that that's really to me that those are the important things. Um, we did a bunch of work on different cultivation varieties with our, because again, we had this lab in this standardized cultivation environment, both greenhouse and, and indoor, we could run the same cultivars over and over and over again in different iterate. Like, so we'd have a, we had a, you know, it was, it was large, it had a couple of hundred lights. So, and we had like 20 light rooms, for example. So every week you'd be harvesting a different room. So rather than putting, making one room OG cushion, one room train wreck and one room blue dream, we would run a single four by eight table of each cultivar in every room and harvest it every week. And then those samples would all go to the laboratory. Um, we would do random sampling from the crops or representative representative sampling from the crops and each crop would get a lab test. And so what it allowed us to do was go back and look at the environmental data and see, oh look, there was a, 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 you know, there was a humidity spike or a temperature spike at this week, and look how it changed the terpene profile. We would vary the diets on the plant. We would feed them, you know, chemical fertilizers. We would feed them organic fertilizers. We'd feed them chemical fertilizers with a biostimulant or organic fertilizers with a biostimulant, and you'd see, like, oh look, when you use uh, when you use organic when you use organics to organic methods with biostimulants, the uh, the terpenes would go up and the cannabinoids would drop down a little bit. When you were growing them more or less hydroponically with chemical salts, very little organic inputs, the, the cannabinoids would spike and the TH or the, the terpene contents would crash a little bit. Right? So there's all they're they're just tool to me it's just they're just tools in the toolbox. It's really about what you're trying to do. If you're making really beautiful extracts um, and flavors important, I'd be growing organically with biostimulants, right? If you're looking to make THC diamonds, right? These You've probably seen those and that kind of product. Yeah. Then use chemical salts as long as you can do it in a way that's not damaging the planet, right? Yeah. Good answer. Good answer. So this was more of a personal question I was wondering. Do you feel like there's a compromise between big yields, fast flower times, and inherent quality? I guess what I'm wondering is, in a world filled with these ultra-small yielding exotic plants, so to speak, and exotic is like, you know, a poor code word for like cookies and things like that. Sure. Do you feel like there does still exist a plant that's like big yielding, fast flowering, high quality, or at some point you have to kind of compromise on some of those traits? We have to compromise today because those combinations of traits don't exist together, but I firmly believe that through proper breeding strategies and especially with the aid of genomics and, and the laboratory chemical analysis that we can get the best of both worlds, right? That's the joy and the goal of the breeding is that it's all about what we can produce for the future, right? Um, and really those things are just combinations of traits and there's no reasons that we can't just shuffle the deck and put all those combinations of traits together in a specific way. Yeah, right now, the OGs and the, the things like that, the cookies, they're small, right? But you can, 
<laughs> you can embiggen them maybe is the good word through uh, through selection and breeding, right? You can improve their yield, you can improve their uh, their stature, you can improve their resistance, and that's that stuff is it's going to take time, right? Like these aren't this is not make a couple of crosses and boom, next year we got a huge cookies, right? This these will be like five ten year projects where you learn to understand. Oh, these are the genes that are important for bigness in cannabis, and then you reshuffle those genes, you reshuffle the deck and screen, and look for plants that are that have the the genes for bigness, and the genes for whatever quality metrics we 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 ascribe to the plants together. Right, it's the combination of those things, and like I said, because of linkage, that might be a little bit difficult, but with the right with you know with being able to screen it's really about plants it's it's about having the being able to screen the plant numbers having access to the lab data and being able to afford to do it that's really those are the barriers right so it's not impossible but uh it's also not easy yeah <laughs> right so People- I was just going to say, a bit of a, a random one we got submitted by the guests, but they, they noticed that um, somehow you ended up on one of the George Savante DVDs about how to grow marijuana, and they were wondering, what was the backstory behind that? Was it just like coincidental timing? You were there, or how'd that go down? No, George found me online. I guess he was writing a new book, and he was trying to get contributions from all these people, and he said, oh, everybody that he asked about breeding, they said, come and talk to Chimera, and so he found me. And I, uh, he just, you know, he, he sent me an email one day and I was like, no shit, it's Jorge. <laughs> I didn't know, you know, I just knew him as the guy through the books, right? The books and the DVD. So when he caught me, contacted me, I was like, right on. Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll chat with you. And he's like, I want to do this breeding chapter and I'm thinking, you know, you're the guy to do it. And so I agreed to, to do the breeding chapter for the book. And he came to Vancouver about six, six months later um, funnily enough, it was the, the week before Mark Emery was busted by the DEA on the charges that got him extradited to the United States. And so that week before, we built a grow room in the bank across the street from Mark Emery's shop. And just for the purpose of the video, I mean, we didn't grow in it, but we built it for the purposes of showing people how to build a grow room for the video. And I kind of took him around the city and introduced him to a whole bunch of people. And he, he said to me one day, he's like, you got to be in this video. And I was like, George, I don't want to be in your video. <laughs> like, I'm not interested in putting my face on the video. And he said, we'll get you a mask. And so that was it. That was how I ended up on that video in a, in a weird lion's mask. <laughs> good, good backstory. And maybe you can fill us in likewise on this next one. Are you able to tell us a little bit about the Paki Maroc cut you selected from the Moroccan line? Yeah, she's a big. She's just. I don't know. I don't know how Moroccan she was. You got to understand. It's like you were saying before. Things kind of get modernized because people bring in um, new genetics, right? So, what Moroccan originally was, I think it came from Turkish hemp because it's just it's so similar. Um, and the, the cannabinoid contents were really low for traditional Moroccan hash. Now, obviously, over the last 30 years, they've been bringing Dutch seeds down there all the time. It's not very far. And as you know, I mean, Moroccan hash is one of the ma- major, one of the major export centers for Moroccan hash is Amsterdam. 
So there's definitely a lot of back and forth that people are doing between business between those two places. And I think as the guys would come up to to sell their hash, they'd buy some seeds and bring those back down, and those things would get crossed into uh, the natural populations. And over time, they become more modernized. So this one plant that we got, or that I pulled out of the population, it was fat. I mean, it was like six and a half weeks, seven weeks, and it was like pretty much done. But it had this really strange, well, it wasn't this uh, unheard of trait, but it used so, it put on so much weight in like week three and week four. Like it was bulking up before other plants were even putting little cotton balls on the tips of their, their shoes. Um, and it, it used, it used so much nitrogen that if you, if you, if you stopped feeding it vegetative food, and then switch to to flowering food right at twelve twelve, or when you induced it into flower. By the time you were like the end of week three or beginning week four, the plant was really yellowing out significantly, um, and it was doing that because it was using so much nitrogen to build that really early early floral mass, and uh, that was a pretty neat trait. If you could, you know, as soon as I learned out about the timing of the trait, it, it it caught me off guard for a couple of grows. And then finally, I was like, I'm going to hit this thing with, with way more nitrogen than the rest of the plants early in flower. And it managed to stay green all the way through. And the thing just bulked like crazy. Um, really good. Like, we were talking about grower's plants before. This one was a grower's plant. <laughs> but it had a really nice kind of raspberry nose to it. Um, fruity, but like really in that kind of raspberry flavor class. And she just became something I was like, this thing's actually worth keeping and worth breeding with so we did we made a bunch of crosses with it and uh she's still around but it's um yeah that's that's what we're using there you go a great little explanation on that one on to the next strain of yours i'm interested in and we've had a few people inquire about you even mentioned it yourself the mental floss will you ever remake it and what do you think it was about that line which made it so memorable in so many people's minds (laughs) <laughs> probably the name <laughs> it was a great commercial plant it was a, for me it was a great commercial plant um i could i could pull two pounds off of a light no problem and it and the thing that i really loved about it is it made these this really really high quality bubble hash like water hash and even dry sift was it was incredible but it really held on to its flavor through the water process and it made a hash that was just fantastic i remember bringing it to amsterdam the first time i met david and david is an insane hash head and uh, our you know our mutual friend bubble man he was there and he, he said david you really got to try this hashish and pulled it in and and there's something i call the tell or the bubble tell when when the hash is of such a high quality and you put it in a pipe for someone and they can see the bowl when they're bur- bur- when they're burning it their eyes open up and their eyebrows essentially hit the roof right because they're so surprised at the the way that it melts and and the flavor that comes off of it and uh you know i put it in david's bowl and he was uh he definitely gave the bubble tell it was like you know it was <laughs> it, it was hard for him to not you know to to be like i can't you know it was hard for him to not give me respect at that point in time because not only did he think i knew what i was talking about i might have been a lot younger but um you know I had the good quality hash and that's kind of like the, the secret handshake to get into the club, right? If you show up with, with the great hash that you've made yourself, um, it's kind of like, you're welcome to sit at the table, right? Yeah, of course. 
So that, that's one of the reasons why. She's also got a beautiful collar. I mean, you can probably see that picture on my Twitter, and you might have seen them online. She does this great, lovely rainbow thing when it goes at the end of flowering. The leaves go from purple to yellow, or shades of purple and yellow all on the same leaf, and it's just a, a beautiful plant with a beautiful smell. Um, great yield, super dense nugs. Um, and so, yeah, so I've got... It'll come back in it in some form. I've got tons of different hybrids of it, but I'm really working on the right combination of plants for the next release of it. There's still tons of the original. I mean, I've got to have there's there's you know at least ten twenty thousand seeds left over of the first one. So if anybody wants it, you can still hop on board. Oh, that's exciting to hear. The next one I wanted to ask about was in your sassafras cross, you use what you refer to as the superior Afghan skunk. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about that and what made it so memorable and just superior to the others in your mind? Well, it was superior to the others. I think going honestly going back, I probably wouldn't use that plant again. Um, it was superior than the other Afghan skunks that I had seen because it had a great growing characteristic and stature and a nice flower it was it was old school weed it wasn't new school weed right it wasn't it didn't have that banging scent profile that a lot of the newer stuff has um it was great that you could grow it surreptitiously you know like i could hand it to commercial growers and they could put up big growers of it and not worry about scent and that kind of stuff but i've really moved away from those plants um I tried to move away from those plants because I think that we've graduated out of that phase of having to grow low scent, low, low scent plants, right? I, I went into this hydro store once, and when I first moved to Vancouver, I went into this hydro store, and you know, some of my girlfriends taught, brought me in to meet this plant pathologist girl that was working there, and they introduced me, and she said, "Oh, you grew, you invented the, you bred the frostbite, didn't you?" And I said, "Yeah, I did actually," and she was like, "That." plant almost got me fucking busted you know she was so livid about how much that plant stank right and and it was like you know i was like yeah that's kind of what we select for now right like that's that's what we want um get some carbon filters so but yeah there you go well great yeah sorry sorry please go on no, it just she relayed the story about her landlord standing outside and she was trying to get rid of them. It was, you know, grower problems, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's it, right? Thankfully, carbon filters are pretty good these days. Yeah, um, yeah. So, the next one, the C4 strain. This had always caught my eye because obviously the name, it's very close to the C5, which is a, a notable clone, a, a Northern Lights haze. However, the genetics couldn't be more different on paper, a cotton candy crossed by Shishkaberry. Was this an intentional play on words because you saw some similarities or purely coincidental? No, the C4 for me meant fast and explosive. There was a, there was a kind of Porsche, a Porsche Carrera 4, and that was really <laughs> what it was named after, and that and the the idea that it was so fun. I mean, it hit this thing also hit like week six and seven and just exploded. Um, and I, I really thought that it was, a, I still do feel like it, it was a big improvement on either of the two parent plants. Like when they came together, you know, one plus one definitely equaled three. Um, it had the best of both really rock hard flowers. I remember I had this one 
one grower, I think he went by the name Reggie the Roddy, and he used to grow the stuff and just turn the, the entire crop into hash. And he had this, the hash was white, like it was beautiful. It was the most light colored hash I've ever seen. And you'd put a flame to it and it would just turn to a liquid right away. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'll, I'll probably do something with that in the, when I when I get some space to actually grow into. We've actually got an opportunity now um, with two different 20-plus acre legal farms that are within an hour of where I live now. And they've both offered me as much space as I want to kind of play over there and just screen for things. And we're going to start, you know, try to improve the auto lines that we're working with and really try to make true-to-type um auto plants you know a lot of times you'll buy like these days you'll buy auto plant that's like auto cookies or auto whatever the name is and they don't actually smell anything like the named plant right because autos are a little bit of a a tricky thing to work with breeding wise that you have to breed them in a slightly different way you can't keep backup clones or most people can't keep backup clones um so because they're just difficult to keep alive in that uh, in the clonal state unless you're using a specific tissue culture regimen um so we're going to try to use genomics and you know classical breeding techniques to actually make auto versions of all the plants that you you know that you'd want to have on the market because that kind of thing in canada would be really ideal for the new um the new industry where people are growing purely for you know for example rosin extracts right you want to have like a few acres or more ideally of plants that are going to that are going to flower fast. Uh, we have a relatively short season here in, in Canada compared to say California, we can't grow, you know, you got to pretty much be done and out of the ground by mid to late September in most parts of the country. Um, and even going that long, you, you might be well into the wet season. So you're risking, you know, molds and all the bad things that come with rain um, and flowering cannabis together outside. So the idea is to like really try to breed those things um, and screen a lot of the old stuff. I mean, you just can't, I've got so many seeds, <laughs> you can't grow them, any, you know, all indoors or in the greenhouses. We just don't have that much room. So a couple of 20 acre plots is pretty attractive to, uh, to look at for screening, right? The question is, will everything finish in time? but you just, you don't know until you do it. So. Yeah, sure. Sure. So maybe a bit of a hard one to answer, but out of all the various lines you've worked thus far, which are you most proud of or most pleased with the results? It's kind of like asking a father what kid child is their favorite. Um, honestly, the most proud one is, of the last couple of years has been, this beta caryophylline CBD plant that I bred for the group down in California that was subsequently patented. Um, CBDV is a chemical. Everybody knows about THCV, THCV but CBDV is um, a chemical that's even more effective for epilepsy than CBD. And so we created a variety. When I found the, the propyl plants and started breeding them into the CBD background, we ended up finding plants that were like roughly 50-50% of the cannabinoid fraction was CBD and the other 50% was CBDV with like very little THC in it. So it had zero recreational or fun potential. It was not that kind of program. 
Um, but the idea hit came to me at one point in time. Actually, I was at the ICRS listening to some speakers talk there about beta caryophylline, and they mentioned that beta caryophylline was a um, and it had antispasmodic properties. And I was like, damn, that's perfect. I need to breed a beta caryophylline terpene profile into the CBDV line. Um, and then I started looking at what other terpenoids could also have antispasmodic effect. And linalool, which is from lavender, also has some anti-convulsive um, properties. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to try and find a plant that I can stack with CBD, CBDV. And if I can make it have a terpene profile that's like beta caryophylline and linalool rich then that's probably going to be a good plant for kids with epilepsy, right? That was kind of the, the the genesis is like, how do you take a medicine like CBD that all these children are using for, you know, what is it, Lennox-Gasto syndrome or whatever it's called? Um, these epileptive disorders for children, and they're, they're really massive. They, these, these, these kids have epilepsy so bad that it leads to these massive developmental problems. I don't know if you know the story of Charlotte Figgy, but I mean – you know, she she passed this year, and she was just a kid. Like, she was a baby, really. Um, and it's just horrible watching these kids go through this stuff. And, and if you can make a medicine that actually works for them, that's pretty awesome. And so I'm not in the medical testing space. Like, that's really – I don't consider that my job. I kind of see my job as let's make the plants and then let the doctors figure out what's going to work for the kids. But – when when we crossed the CBD V plant that I'd made into the plants with the desired terpene profile, we had to flip through a couple of generations. But after a couple of generations, this one plant popped out, and boom, it had the right cannabinoids and it had the right terpenoids. And it was really like the, in my opinion, and maybe I'm biased in saying this, but I think that in my opinion, it was really one of the first plants that was made. So that you had the cannabinoids that were effective for, or potentially effective for this one condition, and then you surrounded it with an entourage effect of molecules that that had the you know it, that also had been shown in the scientific literature to do that same kind of thing, right? And uh, it just to me it was like it kind of epitomized that new kind of potential that what we could do with cannabis where you're creating a plant with the idea that it, it's actually optimized for a specific condition, right? A specific ailment. Um, and so when it popped out and it worked, it was, you know, it started off as a breeding goal. Like, can we do this? It was a breeding experiment. And when we found the plant, it was like, man, it was just a really good feeling, you know? Um, so yeah, yeah, I hope, I hope that plant ended up make it into the hands of people or the, of children that could use it. Yeah, what a what a powerful and fulfilling feeling that must have been at the end of it all. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I've, we've always been breeding for how plants make you feel, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a totally different. It's a different type of cannabis. It's like, okay, I'm going to make some cannabis that's not for the stoners, right? And to be able to create a plant with potential therapeutic benefit that's going to help children that are really suffering is like. Jesus, dude, it's so rewarding. Like, I can't even tell you how good it made me feel when it pat when it popped up. Right? It's like, yeah, let's 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 figure out how to make more plants like this that have no fun potential. Right? <laughs> you know, because it's great. I I like making the fun plants too. I mean, I'm all about it. Right? But um, 
it's just another it's just another thing to help a different group of people, right? Yeah, so. sure. So getting towards the tail end of things, just so you know. <laughs> don't wanna don't wanna keep you too late. Um are there any BC varieties that you feel don't really get the mention they deserve? Ones that kind of fly under the radar. And the add-on to that would be, are there any maybe older school breeders who similarly don't really get the recognition you think they deserve? Yeah, there's probably tons of them. I mean, I think most people, I try to be pretty good about propping the guys that I like. I mean, I really like Jaime from Resin Seeds. There's a few other people over working with autos in Spain. I got a good friend named Roberto um, who's, who has a seed company. I think he's actually folded the company, but they were doing Grassomatic. And they were, they were kind of neat little hybrids. Um, I think anybody that's working, you know, Jaime from Resin Seeds has worked with Canatonic. Uh, my friend Salvatore Cassano, that is not a drug. He's a he works more with like hemp and CBG varieties, and he's an incredible agronomist. And you know, th- there's a there's a lot of people out there that are doing things just quietly. And you know, I just met another guy yesterday, and he lives just on an island just off the coast here. And um, I he's doing a whole bunch of interesting work, and I'd never even met him. I didn't even know he existed. So. You know, just I'd like to reach out to all those people and meet them and then, you know, see how we can support them and how, how we can help make their work better. Um, in terms of the Vancouver Island stuff, our industry kind of out here got really went through a, a, a not a great phase with all the purple cushions. I mean, everybody liked it. You know, the market certainly loves it. But the genetic diversity amongst the growers, it's like everybody started growing the purple and the pink kush and baba kush. And, you know, these, we have these plants here, people call like death baba and all these different variations on the cushions. They're really all the same flavor class. They're, they're, they're different variations of high limonene, uh, high myrcene and high beta caryophylline plants. Um, so kind of in that OG master kush family of plants, but um, yeah, we've got the market here has really gone through a period where it's like no, it's like if you want to grow and sell weed, everybody was growing and selling Kush, and it wiped out a lot of the genetic diversity, and that was all happening right around the time that I kind of left for California. And so when I went to California, we did this, like I said, this massively deep dive in analyzing all these different types of cannabis from all over the market. And in the process, learned a lot about the different types of chemistries, terpene profile wells that can exist. And so that's kind of really one of my things right now is that I'm trying to bring all those things back and re-diversify the market here, right? So that it's more than just that one flavor profile. And, you know, like we were talking about before, we're trying to bring back some of these milder varieties of cannabis right which again sounds counterintuitive to people but it's all about providing the the breadth and diversity of the cannabis species so that anybody that wants to use cannabis can have something that they enjoy right and i don't have to like you know like if i want to give something to my mom like if i gave her a toke of an og dude she'd be on the couch for a week you know so having these lighter lighter kind of more social varieties um for certain population groups like you know a gift to grandmas and stuff that don't want to that, that don't want to get blasted and they just want to have their pain taken away i think that those things are really important out on the market too 
and it's uh, we're facing a little bit of a challenge with growers and with distributors who don't, you know, they think that they know better, and maybe they do, but I, th- I don't think that the, the distribution people know better, you know. They just know that the only thing that sells is high THC stuff, so they only want high THC stuff. Well, it's kind of like having a liquor store that only sells whiskey, right? You can't get a beer or a bottle of wine, and it's not really a diverse market. Yeah, it's it's sad but true. Um, what are your thoughts and experiences on Hawakan strains and the Mexican strains in general? I know you've got a good sort of um, experience base with them, but the thing which interests me is that you commonly hear about ties and Southeast Asian lines being all the rage these days. No one ever really mentions Mexican. Do you think they'll ever make a comeback? I think when... I mean, Mexico's developing an industry. They're about to... Uh, I don't like they've got some version of legalization essentially with they're allowing home growers or not home growers but people to grow a little bit of their own and I think that they're trying to work out how the system what it's going to look like um, so I'd like to take a lot of those things back there and replant them um, again the way cannabis was grown there it was all there was nobody was grown from clone back then everything was grown from seeds so there's probably a lot of dogs but I think that if you took them back down there and grew them in the right environment or even in very Southern California um, that you'd be able to find a lot of traits of really, you know, related to resistance. And I'd really like to see these equatorials. I mean, it would be hard to sell them in the Canadian marketplace because just, you know, the market wants big fat buds. It's kind of a weird thing. I mean, it's just what it is, what it is. But, um, you know, I'd like to put on like the 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 Guerrero and that Highland Mexican cross with the blueberry, because it's it just makes these weird knuckly, long foxtaily spirals, just collections of bracts, right? And again, that's I think that would be a sign of a healthy market when they there is that diversity in choice for consumers, right? A, a legal market of just Kush isn't very exciting to me. Yeah, sure. I think everyone's a bit burnt out on that right now. It's got its time and its place, but it's like not the one to smoke it first thing in the morning. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, what are your thoughts on males found in S1s? Like, I think the most notable case of this is Cannabiogen released like the Peyote Purple line, which supposedly was the result of like a male they found in some Bubba Kush S1s. Do you think this is a like a, a case of pollen contamination or they do occur? And if so, would you be hesitant to use one? Well, again, I'm trying to move away from males, so I probably wouldn't use it unless it had some special set of characteristics. Um, if it is like, you got to remember, we can confirm all these things now using lab data or genomics, right? And so if you have a plant that is free from markers associated with the male sex and you sell that plant and then you find that plant, you know, you find a plant that comes up as we'll, we'll call it in quotes, male, you can send that lab, that plant to the lab, the DNA lab and see if it has male markers. If it does, well, it's a pollen contamination, Right, and if not, and it's a plant that's just producing male flowers for some other reason, you know, one of these weird genetic anomalies that we were talking about before, then to me those are also interesting from a research point of view. It's like, well, let's figure out why. 
Um, but I don't think that I'd be more likely to use them because um, I just don't I don't know what benefit that it would add, right? But I'd probably self the plant. I'd probably try to self the plant and see if I could, you know, would that trait pass on, right? I, I was telling a story the other day too when Rob and I were in Morocco. We were walking through these fields with thousands of plants, and we found this one plant that was it was a female. Um, but it looked, for all intents and purposes, like a male. But rather than having male flowers, they were female flowers. But the morphology of the flower and the way the growth habit and the stretch and everything, it was a you know it was a it was a male. It was a just a, a bizarre one of those weird off types, like those really rare, you know, one in ten thousand kind of genetic anomalies. Or it looked like, and uh, you know, it was it was just it was it was neat to see because it's not something that you see all the time. Um, if I ran into something like that, yeah, I'd probably try to breed it out just for the anomaly of it, right? Just to see is this, can this trait be passed on. Or is it something in the plant that's just reacting to the environment? Yeah, understandable. It's it, yeah, it could be could be one of many things, right? Yeah, it could be anything. And until you start doing the experiment or experiment and 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 analyzing it with the tools that we have available to us, you can't actually figure it out, right? It's like everybody can hypothesize. You know, Doobie's a great. You know, Lewis Doobie, the breeder for uh, for Ace. He's a, he really knows what he's talking about. He's also another super nice guy in the industry, just a really good person, and um, he knows what he's doing. But there's, you know, I, I have another friend in Spain. <laughs> he lives there. He's actually Jorge Cervantes, and he goes to these like neighborhood meetings. He went to one meeting, and some guy showed up with a male cannabis plant, and like. In August, and he he ranted and raved at everybody in the neighborhood meeting. It was like, "This is a male cannabis plant. You have to destroy it, right? Because you, <laughs> you guys are all pollinating my stuff, right? And that's kind of an inevitable thing with cannabis pollen. Like it does travel on the wind, and and depending on what's going around your neighborhood and how you know how serious you're about your filter intakes on your grow rooms, right?" Pollen can get in and, and cross, you can get cross-contamination. And especially if you're doing other types of breeding around, I mean, it can happen, right? So before I would really believe that a male plant came from an S1 seed line, I'd want some actual data to be like, okay, let's actually just confirm your hypothesis and say, yeah, let's look at it and say, are there genetic markers? You know, or is does it look like there's a genetic contribution from an outside plant? And we can figure all that stuff out now because we have all these tools at our disposal. Um, so again, I think that the growing and breeding community really needs to embrace these kinds of technologies rather than being afraid of them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it makes sense just to utilize the new in the, in the current. So I think that brings us to our final five questions. I love these questions. We ask them to every guest, always get great answers out of them. So the first one is, what's your absolute most memorable strain or bud or hash you've ever smoked? The one that stands out more than any other. I think, again, it's probably nostalgia, but there's a, a friend brought me something that he had, he had, he worked at a, a, um, a backcountry cabin up in the mountains of British Columbia one summer, and he came back to the town that I lived in, 
and he had this this flower and it was grown from an island out here on uh, on in the Vancouver Island Strait or the strait in between Vancouver Island and the mainland a little hippie island called Lesquiti and this plant was called Lesquiti Sweetie is what they called it and it was some kind of haze variant and it was so ripping strong at least to my memory it was like really strong and I don't know if it was that Everything else that I was smoking back at the time, keep in mind, this is I was in high school. This is a long time ago. Um, but it was it was so much stronger. I don't know if it was just so much stronger than what I had been smoking or it really was this anomaly plant. But, yeah, that one really, I remember it really whacking me more than anything I had, else had. And I've never, of course, never been able to track it down again to be able to duplicate the experience. But that was a memorable one. There's so many. I mean, you know. When I came back from Morocco with Rob, um, I got we 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 both had the same meal the last night in Morocco, but I had mayo on on the fries. Some there was like a garlic mayonnaise that they had put on my fries, which I shouldn't have should have known not to eat in like a country like Morocco. But of course I did, and I got the worst case of food poisoning I ever had, like salmonella, and I felt like I was on my deathbed. Uh, coming oh, back no. from Barocco to Amsterdam. And like, I mean, there was people on the plane that were trying to kick me off the plane. They thought I was spreading Ebola to Europe and stuff. Like I really, <laughs> did, I really didn't look good. Um, and so we ended back, we ended up back on, you know, I was, I ended up sleeping on the floor in Rob's apartment for a few days because my host in Amsterdam, David's wife, she's had a surgery and she's immunocompromised. So I can't just show up, you know, puking bugs all over the place right so i went and stayed on this little cushion on rob's floor and um simon had he had met with simon when we got back and simon had brought a little jar of uh, cali mist and so I, I remember lying on the floor trying to like keep my bodily fluids in check smoking a joint of of simon's cali mist grown in amsterdam by simon it was a pretty cool thing you know, it was a little. Not everybody gets to have that experience. Wow! Yeah, that must have been very, very memorable. I guess on the opposite end of the spectrum, was there ever a strain that just got hyped up phenomenally, and you were really excited to try it, and then when you finally got it, you were just a bit unimpressed? Yeah, tons. There's so many of them. There's, you know, Vancouver. Unfortunately, was full of the kind of stuff. We we kind of classified them all into this category we called bimbo bud, and they were like, you know, it was what the 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 brokers that were always running around Vancouver trying to buy all the weed to send down to the states. That I kind of kept away from those guys because I always thought they were just a heat score. But that was the kind of stuff that they were looking at, and it was um, bimbo bud was just lime green, really bright, kind of white. Um, and it all kind of just smelled generic and, you know, everything just kind of fit into that thing. And there were so many of those that were just disappointing, you know, sugar shack. That was one of them. There's a whole bunch of them. J bud. There was a ton of them. They were all really just biker grown hash plants that were stuffed full of hydroponic nutrients and really, really frosty, but not very, not very much punch to the, you know, to their appearance. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, the next one is, if you had to be dropped off on a sort of deserted island, left to your lonesome, you can only take three strains with you. What strains are you going to take? Just kill me, man. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, I'd probably take a, a, a high terpenaline variety. I'd take something in that hazy kind of sweet skunk family. And hmm, it's a tough call. Yeah, yeah. I'd probably. It's a tough call. I mean, it's 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 that's my nightmare, right? To be limited to three. How unfair would that world be? Oh, I used to only give people two. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, cookies, OG, something for the beta carry-offing class. I mean, as much as I rage on the cushions, there there is a beauty to them, you know. Yeah, definitely. I've I've got a very sweet spot for cookies myself, even though people like to call me a fanboy. So this one uh, is is the opposite end of the last question. Let's say instead of you being marooned on the island someone you're not the biggest fan of is getting marooned on an island and you get to pick the three strains they get left with. What are you going to leave them with? Oh, man. What can I say? Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. There you go. Would you give them the same as what you'd take? Yeah, why not? I love that. Very diplomatic. You're the second guest to have shown that they uh, have a bit of humanitarian in them, so I do appreciate that. Right. So, f- final question for the interview and one of the fan favorites. If you could go back to any point in history, anywhere around the globe, and presumably collect seeds or a cutting, where would you go and when? Well, I would take the seeds, um, and it would have to be in the heyday, you know, before, you know, I was born in the 70s, so I'd probably want to go back into the 60s and uh late 60s and go to all the hot spots you'd go to colombia and thailand and you know india southern india like Karaya area kerala um pakistan afghanistan back when it was friendly to do so as a as a caucasian person um you know really i want to go all those places and that's one of the reasons that you know one of the things i really respect and love about david is that he went and did all that stuff um and i get to learn as we do all we all do when we respect and appreciate our elders we get to learn from them you know um and and learn those experiences through him he had some incredible experiences traveling around the world and um yeah, it's a shame that we don't we can't do that today. But we can do things today that they couldn't do back then too, so it's kind of a trade-off, right? Yeah, certainly. So, I think that just about brings us to the end of things. Was there any shout-outs or comments you wanted to make before we wrap up? Yeah, just much love to anybody growing the plants. Um keep it clean, keep it safe, don't spray chemicals. Um and, you know, much love to our elders, you know, the, the folks that led the way for us, the Mel Franks and Rob Clarks and David Watsons and all those people, even Neville. I mean, you got to give respect. You know, D- again, David says this thing, and it's true. We all stand on the shoulders of giants, right? We wouldn't be where we are today without the efforts of so many people that have c- contributed to the community and contributed to the plant. And... um Let's just keep moving it forward and, and, you know, it'd be great if we can, like I said, we get legalization and you get to experience, you know, a legal regulated system down under and, you know, all these different places in the world that need it, Europe, right? Let's, let's make it happen. 
It's about time. Here, here. I think that's a sentiment we can all get 100% behind. So thank you so much for, you know, the extensive knowledge drop, the in-depth explanation and information. Thank you, Dr. Ryan Lee, for all of your contributions. Pleasure. And I'm not a doctor, but pleasure seeing you guys and they're chatting with you, man. And I had a really good time. A great interview. And there you have it, friends. What an epic conclusion to our episode 50. Huge, huge shout out to Chimera. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us and to share all of this incredible breeding, scientific and historical knowledge. We are incredibly grateful to have had the chance to listen. Likewise, a huge thank you to our amazing sponsors. Seeds here now, best seed bank in the game. Go hit them up, get all those fire seeds you need for your next crop. Also, swing on by Coppet Biological Systems. You're going to need some beneficial bugs and microbes to keep the bad ones at bay. I promise you, you won't regret it, guys. These two, killer combination. Couldn't recommend it any more highly. Finally, a huge, huge heartfelt thank you to the Patreon gang. I really appreciate you guys. You help to ensure that more episodes happen. If you enjoy the show and would like to get early access to episodes, unreleased content, and a few extra bonus goodies, including giveaways, t-shirts, and more, go check out www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. Or Google the podcast Patreon. It's there. Oh, and if anyone wants to grab some of my seeds, feel free to slide on into the DMs on Instagram, guys. I got you back. Well, that does it for this epic three-part hitter, guys. I'll have to see you for the next one. As always, it's your boy Heavy Days signing up from the Upside Down Library. I'll see you for that next one. We'll see ya.